Hey, good morning. It's great to see all of you. It is honestly so good to be here, especially in January. I'm from land of cold and rain and it gets dark at 3 p.m. And so it's fantastic to be here. I have no idea why you're all wearing sweaters. I am so hot right now. It's ridiculous. I don't even know. But it is so, I look forward to a visit to you guys um, for months at a time. I love your pastor, all of your leaders really, but in particular Dave has become such a great friend over the last few years. I love your city, and I, not to sound sappy, but I love you, and I, I really feel that God, I know that is sappy, sorry, but I really feel like God has put a love in my heart for you as a people. I love what God is stirring in you as a church, and obviously what you're sitting in is a move of God, and so I mean it when I say it is an honor to be here with you for the weekend. So thanks for the invites and the sunshine. It was fantastic. Um, that said, please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. So um, early this week, I asked Dave, hey, what do you want me to teach on this weekend? And he said, um, how about the Holy Spirit? I'm doing a series on the Holy Spirit up in Portland right now. And he said, how about you do like a primer, like an overview of everything there is to know about the Holy Spirit in 40 minutes? Okay, only because you're my friend. Otherwise, no way. So that's kind of the agenda for today. Uh, we have a ton of ground to cover, so buckle up and we'll kind of run through it and then towards the end we'll slow down and let it start to sink into how we think and feel and live out the kingdom of God um, here in your city. And uh, this is basically three of my teachings kind of all cut down and smashed together. So hopefully it will come off okay, no promises. But last week was on Satan, so there's nowhere to go but up right? <laughs> However bad this is, even if it doesn't work, at least it's not about Satan, all right? John chapter 14, if you have a Bible or a phone or whatever. Let me turn there really fast. And to start off, let's read the text. John chapter 14, verse 12, all the way down to 18. Here we go. Very truly I tell you, Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me to do anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Okay, to start things off, how about a little Greek, okay? The New Testament, as the majority of you know, was originally written in Greek, and so what you have in front of you in your lap right now is a translation, and there's just two words I want to kind of jump into for just a minute. It's that phrase in 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Now that word another is alos in Greek, and there's actually two different words that you can translate another from Greek to English. One means another of a different kind, and then this word right here, alos, means another of the exact same kind, basically a duplicate. So this can be translated from Jesus' mouth, I will give you another one of me. 
But then the second half of that phrase is this word parakletos, and it's really slippery to translate from Greek into English. We think advocate is the best. It can be translated helper. That next line is to help you. It can actually be translated counselor, as in basically a legal advocate in a courtroom. And we think the best way to kind of wrap around it in English is this idea of advocate. So Jesus is essentially saying, hey, listen, I'm out of here. I'm a few days from now. This is right before the cross in John's telling of the story of Jesus. I'm about to head out to the Father's side, but don't worry, I will give you another one of me to come alongside you and help you and push and pull you and advocate for you to step into all that I have for you as my followers. And this is basically what Jesus is getting at. Now the question is, who is this another one of me, this advocate, and it's the Spirit. Now, orthodox historic faith, if you know anything about the history of the church and the way of Jesus, has always said for millennia now that God exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, most of us get God the Father, right? He's in heaven, he's over the universe. Most of us get Jesus because we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four first century biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. And so we have story after story. Jesus was in a body, in flesh and blood. And so most of us kind of sort of get Jesus of Nazareth. But then when it comes to the spirit, if we're honest, I think for a lot of us, at least in the American church, he's kind of a blank spot in our thinking about God, right? It's kind of like, I get God, the Father, I get the Son, but then when it comes to the Spirit, it's a little bit ambiguous, maybe even fuzzy. So I just want to get into that a little bit today and hopefully bring some clarity out of the text right here and the teaching of Jesus in front of you about who the Spirit is. Now, if you're taking notes, here's a good place to start. When we think about the Holy Spirit, this is the best way I know to kind of wrap language around who the Spirit is. The Spirit is God's empowering presence. Now, this language of God's empowering presence is not from me. Uh, Anything good is usually not from me. It's from a scholar by the name of Gordon Fee, who has a 1,000-page tome out on the Holy Spirit. It's one of the best things I've ever read. But if you're not in the mood to read 1,000 pages, here's the three-word summary, all right? 1,000 pages, three words. It's God's empowering presence. Or put another way, the Spirit is God's person, meaning He is God, and God's power, and God's presence. So I see all three right here in the text, so let's take each one in turn. First, let's chat for a few minutes about this idea of God's person. Notice right in front of you, let's start in verse, say, 17, notice the language. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you will know him for he lives with you and will be in you. So the spirit is a he, not an it. Now, when I say he, I don't mean the spirit is male, okay? If you've ever read Paul's writings, at one point in Romans, Paul writes um, that the Holy Spirit is basically like a mother giving birth to a child. Come on, all of you moms, right? But the idea here is not that the Holy Spirit is a guy, but that the Holy Spirit is a person, a living being that we are in relationship with. But honestly, this is not how a lot of us think about the Holy Spirit. So I was on the phone the other day with my buddy Johnny Hughes, who is an Anglican church planner in London, England, and he said to me in his fantastic British accent that I won't try to copy because I'll just sound dumb, you know those people that can do really good imitations? I'm not one of them. So... I was just homeschooled, and I just, it goes south really fast. 
Anyway, he said to me, he said, John Mark, the greatest heresy in the American church is that the Holy Spirit is an it, not a he. And there's so much truth in that. In fact, a recent survey done by the magazine Christianity Today, through I think it was through Gallup, of, quote, American evangelical Christians asked the question, true or false, the Holy Spirit is a force and not a person. 51% of people in the survey said true. 7% said, I don't know. And a meager 42% said false. So the vast majority, at least well over half of, quote, American evangelical Christians, end quote, think of the Holy Spirit basically like the force from Star Wars. <laughs> and I'm all for the force from Star Wars, right? It's an energy field that binds all living things together. It surrounds us and permeates us. It's what gives a Jedi Knight his power, right? You know this. I mean, this comes from like a mile from here, right? You know all about the force. I was, I was at the Yoda fountain yesterday. Like, obviously, you are well-versed in the force. So whether this line of thinking comes from Obi-Wan Kenobi or Oprah or 58% of American evangelical Christians, this honestly, I honest to God think that how most people in the U.S. think about the Holy Spirit is as the force from Star Wars. So think of the Star Wars universe, right? You have like most people kind of know about the force. Maybe they believe in it. Maybe they're like Han Solo and they don't or they're skeptical. Just give me a blaster any day or whatever. But, you know, most people have nothing to do with the force. Then you just have a select few that are essentially the Jedi Knights and their prophecy and healing the sick and casting out demons and miracles. And then every once in a while, you have that middle layer of, like, force. Like, the force is strong with this one. Like, early Luke Skywalker. You know, you're at church and somebody starts to pray or is up leading worship. Wow, the force is strong. He's no Jedi. You're not a Jedi yet. But it's strong. That's honestly how I think a lot of people think about the Holy Spirit. But next slide. This is to think of the Holy, not that slide, never mind. This is to think of the Holy Spirit as a power that we wield rather than as a person that we are in relationship with. And yes, the Spirit has power. We'll talk about that in a minute. But first and foremost, He is not a force or an abstract kind of power out there in the universe. He is a person a person that we're in relationship with. I think of Paul's writings later in the New Testament. At one point he writes, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You can't grieve a force. You can't grieve a power, but you can grieve somebody that you are in relationship with. At another spot he writes, since we live by the Spirit, this is in his letter to the Galatians, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step or walk in step with the Spirit so we can walk ahead of the Spirit. Or we can fall behind the Spirit, or we can get off track and separated and at a distance and maybe even out of earshot from the Holy Spirit. Or we can walk side by side, hand in hand, with the right cadence, with the right pace, in tune with the Holy Spirit. All that to say the Spirit is a person. So first thing you need to know, that we are in relationship with 24-7. Secondly, if you're taking notes, um, God's empowering presence. So the Spirit is also God's power. In uh, 12, if you back up to the beginning of Jesus' teaching, very truly I tell you, which is basically Jesus for, I really mean this next part, listen closely, whoever believes in me. So how many of you believe in Jesus? 
Yeah, not just that he was like real and he actually was here, that's basically historical fact, but that he was more than just a rabbi, that he was a messiah, maybe that he was even more than a messiah, not maybe, that he was more than a messiah, that he was the embodiment of God himself. So all all of you who fall into that category, which is, I'm guessing, the vast majority of you, anyone who believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. Now, what has Jesus been doing so far in this story? Miracles. Healing the sick, casting out demons, prophecy, raising the dead at one point. I mean, miraculous story after story after story. In fact, he goes on to say, and you will do even greater things than these, than what I've been up to, because I'm going to my Father. Now, there's all sorts of debate about what in the world Jesus means here by greater. I mean, you just finished raising Lazarus from the dead. Is he saying, like, that's nothing, you're going to one-up that? Like, I don't even know how you one up raising somebody from the dead, like a new app. I don't think that quite does it, you know? (laughs) So what exactly is Jesus getting at? Now, we don't know for sure. The leading theory is that by greater, Jesus means greater in quantity, not quality. So just basic mathematics. Jesus was in a body. He was in space. Any time, he could only be one place at once at a time. But now his body, to borrow from a metaphor that runs all the way through the New Testament for the church, his body, his followers, his church, is made up of billions and billions of men and women and children all over the world, down through history, and now God, or Jesus himself, is at work through his body all over the world. So there's greater quantity, if not quality. So that's the leading theory. Whether or not that's the right way to read the teaching right here, here's what we know for sure. Whatever Jesus means by greater, he doesn't mean lesser. Would you agree? You're thinking like, this is what you learn in seminary? Yep, this is basically it, (laughs) right here, four hours later. Whatever Jesus means by, hey, I'm doing all this amazing stuff, casting out demons and healing the sick and raising the dead and prophecy and God's power is on me and you're actually going to do greater things than these. Whatever that means, it doesn't mean, yeah, you're not actually gonna do anything, but go to church every Sunday. Like, whatever it means, it means that God wants to do something in and through our life. Now, the question becomes, how? Like, how in the world is this going to happen? And Jesus says next, 13, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, in my name is not a tagline that you put on the end of the prayer to get what you want. So, God, I really want whatever. In Jesus' name, amen. Boom. Hope for the best. Um, your name in the ancient Near East was synonymous with your character, with who you are. So to pray in Jesus' name has nothing to do with the tagline at the end of a prayer. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray in line with his character. You pray for the kind of stuff that Jesus is all about. And when you pray in line with the kind of stuff that Jesus is all about or in Jesus' name, then he says basically you get what you want because what you want is what God himself is after. So prayer is at the top of the list, all right, but then he goes on. You may ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands, and listen, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. So to recap, Jesus is basically saying, listen, if you believe in me, you'll do the kind of stuff that I've been doing, miraculous stuff. In fact, you'll even do greater things, whatever that means. How? Well, I'll give you my spirit. My spirit will be in you and at work in your life. Now, pause here for a minute. To make sense of this, we need to do a little theology, all right? So buckle up for a 10-minute detour. 
This next part is going to feel like you're back in grad school. I love that in San Francisco I can say back in grad school. In my city I'd say back in middle school. But here, <laughs> in San Francisco, it's back in grad school. This next part you feel like you're, and I love my city, don't get me wrong, you're just a lot smarter than we are. <laughs> it's going to feel like you're back in school, but just hang with me because it's incredibly important. So, in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you've ever read one, we read about Jesus doing miracles, right? Lots of miracles. Healing the sick, casting out demons at the top of the list, but then there's all sorts of stuff. Feeding thousands of people with a little boy's lunch, walking on water, raising people from the dead, on down the list. Now, there are two different ways. There's probably more, but at the top of the list, there are two ways of reading the miracle stories. The first is as proof that Jesus was God. This is how the miracle stories have been read in the West, not around the world, but in the West for the last 300 years. Here's the backstory. Before the Enlightenment in the 18th century, people had a far more spiritual worldview. So the sun would come up in the morning and people would say, God made the sunrise, or the gods made the sunrise. Thank you. And the rain would fall, crops would grow, people would sit down for dinner and say, God gave us the food. The gods gave us the food. But after the Enlightenment, people said, wait a minute, now we know there are all sorts of scientific laws and principles that make sense of the cosmos. The sun rises because the earth is round, not flat, and it spins on its axis at 23.5 degrees at a speed of 18.5 miles per second, and it goes around the sun once every 365 days. That's why the sun rises. Now, this gave birth, as we all know, to a far more secular worldview. So out of the Enlightenment was born the language of natural and supernatural, which was never really used prior to then. Natural meaning the event uh, or the phenomenon goes by natural laws and principles, the sun comes up in the morning, or supernatural, supra, above or out of what's natural, meaning the event or the phenomenon doesn't make sense, it doesn't fit into scientific laws and principles, there's no explanation that we know of other than God. Now, not long after that, all sorts of people, at least in the West, started to say, you know, we don't even believe in the supernatural at all. So that means we don't believe that Jesus even was God. If there is a God, he or she or it or they is up there somewhere not involved in life here. We know how the world works. If there is a God, well, it's not him or her or it or they. And so we don't even believe that Jesus was any more than basically a really good teacher. Now, when all of this started to happen, followers of Jesus, as you can imagine, started to freak out a little bit because people in the West were starting to question a core tenet of faith, really the identity of Jesus himself. And so the comeback was, hey, whoa, 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 back up the train, read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus does miracles. Here's Jesus healing the sick. Here's Jesus casting out demons. Here's Jesus walking on water. See, 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 look, look. This is proof that Jesus was God. Now, even though that was done with a good heart, and even though we as followers of Jesus very much believe that Jesus is the embodiment of God himself, still there's a problem with that line of thinking. Lots of people in the scriptures do miracles all over the Bible. Before Jesus, you have the prophets, in particular, I think of Elijah. Like Elijah does a miracle that is basically parallel to every single miracle that we read about Jesus, including making food stretch way past what is possible, including walking on water. We read about all of that a millennia before Jesus of Nazareth. 
Then after Jesus of Nazareth, read the book of Acts, read the New Testament, read about Peter, Paul, the early church, resurrection, healing, casting out demons. Read church history, read modern history, read about what God is stirring right now in China and in South America and Brazil and all over the world. We read about all of this stuff. But we don't go around and say Elijah or Peter or Paul or Brother Yoon in China or whoever is God in human flesh. We just say, no, man, that is God's spirit, God's power at work in and through Elijah or Peter or Paul, whoever it is. So a much better way, I think, to read the miracle stories is not as proof that Jesus was God, but as signs of the inbreaking kingdom of God through his Messiah, Jesus. So when the prophets, if you've ever read what's now called the Old Testament, when Isaiah or Jeremiah write about the kingdom of God, which for them was hundreds of years in the future on the horizon, they over and over again write that in the kingdom of God, the blind will see, the lame will walk, and the oppressed will go free. And so what do we read about Jesus doing over and over and over again? Healing blind people, healing lame or crippled or handicapped people, and setting people free from demonic power over and over. Now, for years, I grew up in the church, so for years I read these stories, and there's a lot of them. I mean, a lot, right? I read these stories and basically thought the point was that Jesus was nice. It's kind of like that 90s bumper sticker. Remember that practice random acts of kindness? Remember that from back? No, I just dated myself, sorry. It was a thing, like pre-hybrid, it was a thing back in the day, all right? It was like the old coexist bumper sticker. So that, do you have that down here? Yes? Okay, all right, just making sure. We have a lot of hippies in my city. I know you have a lot here, but we have more, trust me. So um, all that to say, and that's kind of how I read it. Like this is just Jesus doing nice stuff, as if that's the point. Like random acts of kindness, awesome, Jesus, you're really nice. And while I have no doubt that Jesus was nice, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is, man, this is what the kingdom of God was always supposed to look like. Blind people start to see, lame people start to walk, oppressed people are set free. So when Jesus does miracles and you read a story, it's not so much proof that Jesus was God, although there's a little bit of truth in that, because Jesus did very much, contrary to what a lot of people think, make the claim that he was the embodiment of Israel. Israel's God in flesh and blood. There's no way around that. That's why he was put to death for blasphemy, right? So the miracles are, in a sense, Yahweh's validation, his yes to what Jesus was teaching. Like, yes, this is true. Yes, this is my son. Yes, I'm at work in and through really as Jesus of Nazareth. There's a little bit of truth in that. But I think the better way to read it is not proof that Jesus was God or proof that Jesus was nice, but rather as signs that the kingdom of God is at long last here and Jesus is the king of it. Now, stay with me, a few more minutes. This begs the question, okay then, if that's true, how does Jesus do miracles? And I would argue, and there's a ton of scholarship here, that the answer is not because he's God, but rather in the power of the Spirit. Now listen, when God became a human being in Jesus, he set aside his God powers in order to become a real true human being, which is not how a lot of us think of Jesus. A lot of us think of basically Jesus as God with clothes on, or kind of God is like masquerading as a human being. When reality, orthodox, historic faith has always been that Jesus is the embodiment of God. So he's both 
human being and he's God at work. So for example, God, and this is a little bit of technical jargon, so spare me here, but God is omnipresent. That's a fancy way of saying he's all places at once. There is nowhere that God is not. Is Jesus omnipresent? It's not a trick question. Is Jesus omnipresent? No, he's a human being. He's in a body, in space and in time, okay? So, wow, that's interesting. God is omnipotent. That's a way of saying all-powerful. There is nothing that God cannot do. Is Jesus omnipotent? No. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He gets tired. He gets worn down emotionally. And at the end of his life, what happens? He dies. And then he comes back from the dead, but he dies. God doesn't, God doesn't die. He dies. And then here's one that's far more provocative that you may or may not disagree with. But God is omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing. There's nothing that God does not know. Is Jesus omniscient? Depends who you ask. I would actually argue that no, he's not. I mean, Jesus all over the Gospels asks questions. And sometimes, like, he knows the answer in the Spirit. But other times, there's nothing in the text anywhere to even suggest that he knows the answer. I think of that one famous line where Jesus is teaching about the future and kind of a rough time before his second coming and the full on in of the kingdom of God. And then he says, yeah, uh, nobody knows the day or the hour, not even the sun. Yeah, we don't know when it's gonna happen. I don't even know when it's going to happen. I don't think that was Jesus lying. I think Jesus actually means, yeah, I don't know when that's going to happen. Now, whether you agree or disagree with that last part, here's what is true for sure. When God became human in Jesus, he set aside his God power. So Paul, if you've ever read his letter to the Philippians, he writes in chapter two that God emptied himself. So he was still God, but in a sense he emptied some of his godness to become Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Dr. Gary Bashirs, who's a professor up in my city, he puts it this way, he laid down the God card as if there's an all-access pass to the universe that gets you in anywhere. When he became human, he set that aside. So think with me, for example, if you've ever heard the story of, where, of Jesus' temptation by, sent, by Satan. Did you read that last week, by any chance? No. All right. So there's a spot in all four Gospels where Jesus is face-to-face with Satan, and the first temptation is to turn stones into bread. Now, is it a sin to turn stones into bread? It's not a trick question. Is it a sin to turn stones into bread? No, if you're out on a hike and you're really hungry, go ahead. (laughs) Go for it. And if you've done that before and you're here and you're just racked with guilt and shame, come forward. We would love to pray over you. It's okay. It's not a sin, all right? So what's the temptation? It's not a sin to turn stones to bread. It was at the end of his fast, not at the beginning. What's the temptation? And most scholars would argue that the temptation in that moment was to pick the God card back up, so to speak, rather than to lean in humility and dependence on the spirit of God. It was rather to instead flex the God muscle, so to speak, rather than be God and be Jesus in one. Now, if all of that is true, the question is, okay, then where does Jesus get his power And the answer is from the Holy Spirit. So when you read, here's what I'm getting at, and here's the end of this little digression. When you read a miracle story, don't just think to yourself, wow, that's God. True, absolutely right. But also think to yourself, that's also what a real, true human being 
intimately in tune and contact and aware of God's presence and power filled with the Holy Spirit of God, that's what it looks like. Now, thank you for listening. Here's why all of that is incredibly important. This means that Jesus is the prototype for all of his followers, meaning he is the template of what God has for every single man or woman who follows his son, Jesus. You know, when you read the New Testament, you notice a pattern start to emerge really fast. You read the first gospel, the gospels, and you see Jesus healing the sick, casting out demons, doing miracles, all in the power of the Spirit. And then you turn the page and you read Acts and the rest of the New Testament, and you read about Jesus' followers healing the sick, casting out demons, doing miracles, the exact same stuff, all in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this, in my opinion, is a power that here, two millennia later, we need, whether you live in Portland like I do, or here in San Francisco, you need this power. I mean, this is such an interesting, I think, moment in history, in particular in the West Coast and in a city like San Francisco. We really live at this axis point and this kind of cross-current of secularism and spiritualism. Such a weird moment. Like it is a thoroughly secular culture. Everybody is a skeptic. Even if you're a diehard like leader at your church, we all have that voice in the back of our head, right? Doubt is now the new normal, the new default setting. So we live in a hyper, hyper secular time and age, but yet spiritualism is all over the place. It's in vogue, and it's not only a trend. It's actually something that people are after and hungry and thirsty for, and none of us really even know what it means. Like when you ask so-and-so, are you a follower of Jesus? Are you religious or whatever? No, but I'm spiritual. And none of us really even know what that means. Like you go to yoga once a week. That's basically <laughs> what it means. Or in my city, five times a week, whatever. So, but we live at this fascinating like cross-current of secularism and spiritualism and then the up and down draft of socioeconomic kind of disparity which is wider and wider in particular in a city. I mean, we went on a walk yesterday, Dave and I, and it's so fascinating in the city. You walk past a $4 million house that's like 500 square feet and then, <laughs> which is awesome by the way, um, and then right in front of it is somebody who's homeless or poor or demonized or mentally unstable and you just have this, this cross, this axis point and we need the power of Jesus of Nazareth and his spirit now more than ever. We need not just to read about stories of freedom from demonic power and healing of illness and sickness and disease, whether it's physical or mental or emotional or spiritual or all of the above. We need to actually see it and taste it and touch it, experience it. We need the power of God's spirit now, I think, more than ever. So. God's empowering presence, God's person, God's power, and then finally, before we wrap up, is this idea of the Spirit as God's presence. So, interesting, in the beginning of Jesus' teaching here, he says in 12, I am going to the Father, I'm about to head out, but in the end, in 17, he says, or I'm sorry, in 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. That's a little bit confusing. So one second he says, bye, I'm leaving, and then two sentences later, yeah, don't worry, I'm with you always, I'll never leave you, I'll never, I'm, I'm with you. Like, how, how can Jesus be gone with the Father in heaven, and, and we actually believe that Jesus is still in a body right now, and at the same time, here, now, on earth, with you and me? And the answer is by the Spirit. 
The Spirit of God the Father, the Spirit of God the Son. In fact, usually in the church we talk about how Jesus is here with us, and there's truth in that for sure, but technically Jesus is with the Father in heaven. It's the Holy Spirit that is here with us on earth as we gather Sunday after Sunday and all week long. Now, this makes sense because if you know the story of the Bible, stretching from Genesis all the way to Revelation, really I would argue it's a story about God's desire to be with his people. So in the Garden of Eden, the first two chapters of the Bible, God is literally with Adam and Eve in Eden. We read this line, walking in the cool of the day. And then the last two chapters of the Bible, at the end of the Revelation, the prophet John writes about the future and kind of the reunion of heaven and earth, no longer separate, but one. We read this line, quote, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And in between, humanity, in Genesis chapter 3, if you know that story, is separated from God. Heaven is separated from earth all because of sin. And I would argue that the rest of the Bible, which is basically all but four chapters, is a story about the living God's relentless, implacable, unstoppable desire to be with his people again. So this is one way of like summarizing the story of the Bible in one minute. First, God comes on Mount Sinai in this cloud of thunder and lightning and smoke and a voice from the top of the mountain with uh, Christian Bale. Then, (laughs) God comes closer in the tabernacle in the desert. Then even closer in the temple in Jerusalem. Then even closer in Jesus. Next week, and Dave, I promise I'm not going to give away your teaching, but but here I'm gonna give away part of your teaching. Next week, in John chapter one, you read that God became human and made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling is the exact same word for tabernacle. God made his tabernacle or his tent or his temple among us as Jesus of Nazareth. And then in the New Testament, you get to Paul's writings and we read that the church is the, quote, temple of the Holy Spirit. So when you gather together, this right here, not the building, not the stage, you are a temple for God's power and presence God's spirit here and then we read later even closer that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit so from Sinai to tabernacle to temple to Jesus to church to your body what you're in and you inhabit and is a part of you this is the story of the Bible closer and closer and closer a God that wants to be with his people So we worship a God who's not far off or distant or uninvolved or aloof or deistic, even if it might feel that way at times. But we actually worship a God who is not only right here, right now, with us, so close that he's in our body like the oxygen in our lungs. We worship a God whose driving passion is to be with his people. Now, to wrap up, my prayer for you as a church is that you would have more of the Holy Spirit, more of God's empowering presence, more of God's power at work in you on the weekend and then all week long in community and around the city, your job, your park, your coffee shop, wherever you go and do life. You'd have more of the presence of God, more of a sense of God's voice over you. Um, At Bridgetown, the church that um, I lead up in Portland, we, over the last few years, have been on this journey to more and more of the Holy Spirit. And it basically start. we just started by saying, Holy Spirit, we want more of you. We believe in you, 
um, we always have. We believe in all the stuff that we read about in the New Testament, but we don't really practice it all that much or live into it or embody it. And so we just started praying, Holy Spirit, we want more of you. And I remember um, a while back, one of our leaders came up to me, sharp, educated guy, but from kind of a conservative, you know, have you heard that joke, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Bible? No, it's really dumb, but kind of that, that kind of a, but there's truth in it, sadly, that kind of a background. And he had a great, he wasn't antagonistic, but he had a great question. He basically said, listen, I don't get it. You keep praying for more of the Holy Spirit. I already have the Holy Spirit. How can I have more of something that I already have? That's a great question. And the answer, as I see it, is the question itself is doomed from the start. Because that is to think of the Holy Spirit as a thing, as a theology, as a doctrine that you do or do not have when you become a follower of Jesus. Rather than as a person that you grow in relationship with. For example, and this is a little bit cheesy, but my first kiss with my wife, not to gross you out, but my wife and I started to date really young, and for all sorts of reasons, we made the decision to uh, not kiss on the lips until we got engaged. Not because, like, we think it's wrong or any stupid, but just because she's Latin and she just couldn't, it was just too much for her, you know? (laughs) So, she's not here, so I can say that, all right? (laughs) So anyway, We date, we're really young, okay? So we date, and finally, I propose. Christmas Eve, uh, late at night, on this hill overlooking the city, get down on one knee, the whole Tammy made the Lord this, how will you marry me, the whole bit, right? Of course she says yes, obviously. (laughs) And and then I said, first words out of my mouth, you know what that means, don't you? (laughs) So, not to like, I don't need to explain it all, but... We just go for it. I mean, like, all in, end of the movie kiss, right? And it was horrible. (laughs) Worst kiss ever in the history of bad kisses, right? We bang our teeth together, and I'm 6'2", and she's 5'1". It was just bad. It was just worst kiss ever. What if I had said in that moment, right then and there, on that hill, Christmas Eve, listen, I have Tammy Mae de Lourdes Hagi. She's mine. She said, yes, she's my wife. I will never have more of her. This is the pinnacle of my intimacy with Tammy. You would all say, that's ridiculous. And here I am 14 years later in a few weeks, a little bit of change, and, and that was just the beginning. I'm still learning new things about her just this last week. I'm still, not to sound sappy, but I'm honestly, we've had a lot of highs and a lot of lows, and right now I think we're at the best spot we've ever been in our marriage. I love her more than I ever have. And we're still learning to live in openness and vulnerability and that Genesis 2 line, naked and unashamed with each other. And we're still kissing, but I don't need to fill you in on that. It's much better now, thank you. (laughs) All that to say, In the same way, yes, when you become a follower of Jesus, in that moment, you have the Holy Spirit. You are baptized not only in water, but as I read it, you are baptized in the milieu that is the Spirit of the God who made everything. But at that moment, you begin a relationship with the Spirit. And some of you over the years, just like in a marriage or any kind of relationship, you actually drift apart 
No matter what it says on paper, no matter if there was a wedding or a moment or a story 10 years, like you actually drift apart. Farther and farther, there's distance. And then others of you grow in your relationship, in your intimacy, in your knowledge of each other, in kind of what in the church we call mutual submission, which is, no, what's best for you? No, what's best for you? No, what's really best for you? And it's this beautiful back and forth dance. This is what God is getting after for his people. So my prayer for you, Reality San Francisco, is that God would give you more of his Holy Spirit. And this sounds a little bit weird to even speak over you, but as I, was, as I was walking to work a few days ago, so I live about a mile from our church and from our office, and so I walk to work every day, and I, I just pray, and I, it's a great time to kind of listen to God and listen to my city. And as I was praying for you and praying for this weekend, weekend God, is there anything that you have for this church that I love and I get to visit? Um, I just had this sense that God wants you to know there's more of his spirit for you. Even though you are already, in my opinion, a church that is doing an amazing job of living into the Holy Spirit. One of the things that I love about you most, you're already a church that has a value for the Holy Spirit, not only theologically, but functionally. You already believe in the Holy Spirit and practice a lot of the stuff that the Holy Spirit does, whether that's prophecy or healing or freedom or whatever. But at the same time, I still think there's more for you. You know, one of my favorite things about this church is how loud you sing. You realize you're like freakishly loud, right? <laughs> so I just want to like pick you all up, take you to Portland and have you flash mob my church for one weekend, right? <laughs> Come on, you Portlanders, like you think you're all so cool, like you suck at singing, like this is how it's done, <laughs> right? This is how it's done. Don't tell my church I said that. I love, I love, love my church. They just didn't usually go to grad school or learn how to sing. So, <laughs> but I love them. So, I love that. And I love that because Jesus said out of the abundance, is one of my favorite lines in Jesus' teachings, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what comes out of your mouth is this like kind of bubbling over of what God is doing at work in you. So, I just, when you sing loud, to me, it's not just, ah, it's kind of how people are down here. That is a sign of, man, there's just this love and sense and presence of God in and through you. But at the same time, and I mean this absolutely in a positive way, there's more that God has for you than singing loud. This two-hour gathering that you have every weekend is incredible. I just sense the presence of God here. But there's more. There's a lot more hours in the week than two. What you are living into in community all week long, all over the city, is amazing. But God wants to do even more. And I just feel like God has you on that journey. He's leading you forward as a church. He's leading you deeper into the waters of his Holy Spirit. And all I want to say is, man, I'm, I can't wait to see what happens in your future. If this much amazing stuff has already gone down, who knows what's coming? And so may you open up all of your life to the Holy Spirit. If there's fear, if there's anxiety, if there's skepticism, may you work through that and let it go. If there's kind of a, a closed hand, I want control over my life, my church, my, may you come under the life of God. If there's an obstacle, an obstruction between you and your relationship with the Holy Spirit, may you, in collusion with the Spirit of God, smash it to pieces right here and right now. And may God give you more of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Um, yeah, let's pray. Would you just stand with me maybe? Clear off your lap. and That is loud. Wow. <laughs> Maybe just to end, um, 
could we just do a, li a little bit of listening and prayer? Is that okay? Maybe just quiet yourself. Uh, maybe turn down the lights. The spirit only speaks when the lights are down, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Would you just maybe quiet um, your body, your soul, your thinking, your feeling? There we go. Now the spirit's here. And... Um, <laughs> Seriously, would you just quiet yourself and maybe just open yourself up to God? You know, this is something we do at my church. And if you don't want to, if it's weird for you or not comfortable, that is absolutely fine. And the regular guy's back next week anyway. Um, but maybe would you just put your hands out in front of you? We do this a lot, just kind of open fist, empty hands out in front. This is just kind of a way of saying, God, I'm ready to receive from you. Um, I'm open to what you have. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty, whatever language you want. And can I just pray over you? Holy Spirit, come. We want more of you right here and right now. Come, Holy Spirit. The language was used early tonight of, or this morning of fall. Would you fall on your people? Like the rain, they rarely get down here. Would you fall? Would you come? Maybe just start in your own language, quieter, under your breath, would you just ask God for more of his spirit? maybe would you just ask God if there's anything standing in the way between you and your relationship with the Holy Spirit a sin unbelief busyness skepticism ignorance whatever it is is there any obstacle between you and intimacy with God would you just ask God and just open up your mind a thought a feeling a sense an impression a word a scripture a phrase a picture a short film in your mind's eye whatever just let God speak over you. Holy Spirit, come and speak. Mm -hmm. 